You are listening to Future Net Zero, a platform to help businesses and the wider community improve our lives and our planet by achieving net zero. Welcome to our new podcast series, Gaia Says No, Africa, in which we will explore the nature and impact of human behaviours on the continent. Welcome to our second episode in the series looking at Africa. Uh, my name is Sumit Bose, founder of Future Net Zero. And apologies for my voice. It's a little hoarse. It could be any kind of equine animal, but yes, yeah, so, I sort of picked up something, but I shall struggle on. Um, today's episode, we, we followed up from last week looking at um, kind of you know, Africa sustainability. I'm going to look in this episode at the challenges around sustainability, what it means, how it works in Africa, the way that perhaps we see sustainability as a kind of nice to have in many parts of the western world is it a fundamental part of how the african continent develops uh back again i've got william Pollan and rachel Sar. uh william Reshma, how are you guys very well cautiously optimistic about being unlocked <laughs> Reshma, very well summit enjoying the weather here in nairobi although it's raining today <laughs> excellent and this week we have a, a special guest joining us we have stanley nayoni who is in Stockholm, but is originally from Zimbabwe. Stanley, hello. Hello, thank you, Zamit. Now, Stanley, tell us a little bit about yourself. You, you, you grew up in Zimbabwe, but you've been a sort of multinational traveler across the African continent, looking at sustainability, is that right? That's correct, yes. So I have, uh, I have lived in several countries. Uh, in Africa, I lived in Liberia, Ivory Coast. Uh, I lived in uh, Mozambique and of course, Zimbabwe where I'm born. And I have also done, I've also done work here in Europe. I've done work in India and um, yeah, what more can I say at this moment? What, what is sustainability to you, Stan? What does it mean? I will give you the official definition because <laughs> <laughs> Let me start with the official definition. Uh, the official definition is that we have practices that really do not work for nature and for people. And yeah. the organization that I work for, the natural step, we have a framework, a methodology, if you like, which defines sustainability in principle terms, which is that we have four fundamental ways in which we develop in a way that's not sustainable. So in four fundamental ways of, of developing, doing things that are not sustainable. The first one being that we extract substances from the Earth's crust that we put into the atmosphere. Uh, this is where you yeah. put carbon and you put heavy metals and minerals. The second one is that we create concentrations of substances that we produce in society that nature does not recognize. And these we also let out in nature in concentrations that nature cannot support or degrade. Uh, the third one is that we physically degrade nature by when we over harvest forest, uh, when we over uh, extract groundwater and things like that. And then the fourth one is about how we as society organize ourselves, which is society, in society we have structural ways in which we obstruct other people from meeting their health their needs for influence, their need for competency and impartiality and meaning making. I know these are heavy, but if you drill them down is we are looking at the well-being of the planet and the well-being of society and people on it. And I, and I think most people would agree that, that that's what it seems to be, the well-being of the planet and people, you put it so profi- profoundly correctly there. But one of the things that I suppose well-being 
often clashes when we use the word sustainability is money. People kind of see money as the route to well-being, but at the expense of the environment. You know, you expand, your society gets bigger, you pollute more. You uh, go from walking to having a horse to having a car, you pollute more. You go from consuming very little to consuming more, you pollute more. Do you see the, the ability for Africa, Stanley, to be sustainable in a way that people don't sacrifice what they want, which is you know, financial betterment, which is, of course, what everyone wants? Uh, yeah, the, the, this is an interesting question because it's also a confusion. I don't think people want financial well, financial affluence. They want what financial affluence can provide, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which is meeting their basic human needs. Uh, and of course, that can include status and all other things that come with money. Sure. Uh, and so when we, when, we, when we try to work with sustainability at uh, whatever level it is, we are really bringing people to the awareness that you have these needs, they need to be met, we agree with you are the ways in which these needs can be met without us destroying the need, the possibility for us to meet the same needs in the future, which is what we do when we just focus on the financial returns. Mm. And that's where we have a problem. And so that, that's one thing. The second thing is that I think there is a confusion between the requirements for sustainability as in required by nature as a system and the society as a system as well, and the strategies. When we are talking about that, there is a difference between sustainability in Africa and sustainability in Europe or elsewhere in the world. We are really talking about the strategies for yeah. working towards sustainability. That is what differs. Yeah, but, but isn't that because certain things that African governments face, European governments faced, you know, decades, if not centuries ago. So they don't have to deal with a lot of those things. When you talk about an African nation, it still has to deal, many of them, with chronic poverty open drains, sewage problems, power being sort of not secure. And these things are big pressures for the government. You talk to governments all the time. They must say to you, well, you know, Stanley, I'd like to be much more sustainable, but you know what? I need to build that power station. And right now I need to use coal to power it. They, they actually say something that is, uh, that is, I consider it, I, I don't want to use bad words here, but let me put it this Excuse way. Them. <laughs> when you say, when you say, I want to lift my people out of poverty. Yes. And then I will start talking about sustainability. What you are saying, you are saying it's okay for me for now to destroy the soils, to destroy the water systems mm -hmm. so that I can feed my people. And then when I've done that, I can come back and start addressing this. <laughs> That's basically what you are saying. Yeah. How do you answer that? When you, when you have these discussions? What I see in, in Africa today, at least in the countries that I've interacted with, there are people who are doing amazing work in making sure that we can produce food in a way that actually rejuvenates, regenerates the soil. We can herd our cattle, our, our numerous number of animals that we have in most African countries in a way that actually promotes a, a thriving environment. And those examples are there. And, and, and the solutions that are coming from people who have a little bit more concern and awareness for the environment are amazing. You, you can't even educate them to do that in a classroom. I give, let me give you an example. I was in Kenya once and uh, a group of people started a project to have bees, you know, and they realized after a while that the bees were dying. 
the bees were dying because they wanted them for honey and they were dying. The, the reason they were dying was because they were going into the nearest uh, tea plantation where they were sp spraying with chemicals and they were dying. Right. Uh, and, and these people got together and brainstormed a solution. Well, how could we solve this problem? We can't stop the people from the plantation from, from spraying because that's their livelihood and we don't have the power to do that. They decided, okay, what we need to do is to provide alternative flowers for the bees so they don't have to go for the tea flower, tree plantation flowers, right? And they did that by grafting new trees and then they solved the problem. At the same time as they solved that problem, they also increased their access to fruits and vegetables. That's a brilliant systems thinking. And I am asked often the question, can you communicate sustainability in an African village? I mean, that is a system yeah. thinking that's beyond comprehension for most people who have gone to systems thinking classrooms. Uh, Reshma, uh, brilliantly timed comment about Kenya, your base there. Are you seeing that transition that, that Stanley's just talking about? Because most people would see the development in Africa is all about, you know, educated people in the cities trying to push and change barriers around it. What do you see for the for the rural communities? Yeah, I, I definitely see the transition that Stanley's talking about. I mean, um, if you take Kenya as an example, um, it's probably one of the most progressed countries in Africa in terms of the renewable energies that it's yeah. using. It's yeah. got geothermal, solar, wind, and it's developing all of that. And people are beginning to recognize the importance of such renewables. Um, but also the systems thinking that Stanley referred to, it's so embedded in the way that things are done. And I think it's capitalizing on that. It's capitalizing on the way people do things here and get them to understand how that fits in with sustainability, which is going to basically escalate how sustainability is understood and um, actually implemented here. Um, there, there's loads of examples like that that you can find um, you know, there's another example of where people use, for example, traditional clay burnt bricks, moving away from that into more environmentally uh, made dura bricks from earth, sand and cement. Uh, and that reduces the amount of trees being cut. Um, so therefore, you're saving about like 14 trees for every house built because you're not using those to burn. But those are all traditional methods um, that people are looking at. And I think that's what we need to capitalize on, those traditional methods and that system thinking rather than trying to bring solutions from outside that don't work in an African context. Is that because in Africa, many things are kind of not, not kind of, you know, hey, let's do this because we should do because we want to be green. They're actually, we need to do this. You know, the example there that Stanley gave the bees, it's a really direct one. We need to feed ourselves. So instead of just saying, oh, let's try and find a way around it, we create a solution of making the bees go somewhere else because we have to do it for financial reasons for transformation. So in what I'm trying to get to is, is sustainability a, a way of actually building society in Africa rather than a kind of pleasant tick box for many people? Yeah, I, I don't, it, the agenda cannot be, this is a global uh, phenomenon and we all have to go behind it. 
Um, because if you think about it that way and comes back to your point in terms of just how many people are fighting to get power, how many people yes. are trying to get above the poverty level, etc. Um, the agenda should be about what do you need to do to better your position. So, for example, the bees, the bees were dying. They needed the bees. They looked for a solution. In the same way, if we look for more sustainable ways for actually enhancing that, if you talk about climate change, you talk to somebody about climate change here as an example, is that my problem? Did I create it? We're probably only about 3% of the emission. Is that a, a Western yeah. problem? But yeah. I'm facing the consequences today. And that's the, that's the conversation. So what are you going to do about the consequences you're facing today? And if we can address it on the consequences and addressing those consequences, that's where the real sweet point is. Um, William, when it comes to, you know, you know, you talk to many people about investing in Africa. I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? Are they investing in what might be tools for sustainability, for good reasons of ethical fortitude, all of that stuff? Or actually, are they investing in infrastructure that just happens to be sustainable because that's where Africa's going to go? I, th I, I think it's probably, and I would, I would hope it's a bit of both. So it's both... It's both the opportunity, the, the financial opportunity in terms of the growth prospects that Africa offers, but also it's what the people and governments are demanding of their invest of the investor communities. Now, that's not across the continent. And of course, there'll be some bilateral agreements between governments directly that may not reflect that. But I think by and large, you're seeing a greater awareness amongst governments that they can put EGS criteria into their investment criteria when they are going to the international investment community. So when they are looking for somebody to build um, a major infrastructure project, they can be demanding in terms of the EGS standards that they want to see achieved in that, particularly environmental standards, because there will be enough competition out there in the global marketplace who want to win that opportunity, who can deliver it yeah. Um, yeah. with more sustainable methods. Um, and I think that's particularly true when you look at um, infrastructure and agriculture. And it comes back to what we were talking about on the first episode around agriculture representing such a massive proportion of opportunities for employment in almost every country, particularly in sub-Saharan yeah. Africa, um, and, and the strong relationship between agriculture and, and having women in the workplace, um, which ties back into the social impact, and that they, governments ha can and should be more demanding on what they expect in the international investor community. Um, and that can be data-driven. You know, they, They'll be looking at the same numbers you and I can see from bodies like the United Nations, um, they just re released a report on the potential impact of climate change on sub-Saharan Africa, particularly with yeah, agriculture. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, just one degrees change could have a negative impact of on West Africa alone of 5% of GDP. So governments will be aware of that potential and the political risk that that comes with that. Um, so to answer your question, I hope it's both. Uh, let me open up to all of you, really. And, and Stanley, I'd be quite interested in your take on this. The perception is, and I'm probably guilty of it, that, you know, there are a lot of really lovely, well-meaning people, but they're ruled by quite despotic regimes who are very selfish. And the governments don't really care about the people that care about, you know, buying a house in Kensington or whatever and sending their kids to some school in Switzerland. You know, this image that we have, that the governments will just, there's too much corruption. And then if you're coming in as a foreign company, you can just roughshod over your sustainability criteria in other countries because they won't care. Is that justified or is that completely like changing so that the governments are now much more about, hang on, if you're going to build it, you can't treat this like a cesspit. You have to build clean as, as, as you know, William was saying that 
the governments themselves see their duty to their people in a much more crystallized way than perhaps, and I might be wrong, maybe it's always been that way, but that's the image I get from outside of Africa. Now let me start with you, Stanley, and then everyone else chip in. Yeah, so you remember when I was presenting the four principles of sustainability, it's, it's, it's really interlinked. The fact that you have a system that does not allow people to express uh, themselves in terms of what their needs are, in terms of what they prioritize to be the, the path and the direction of development. In most African countries, that does not exist. There are a few good examples where people are engaged in in creating the vision of the country, the vision of their communities, and then putting systems in place to make sure that vision is realized. A, a few of the governments are even working against the people <laughs> yeah. when it comes yeah. to good ideas and what is being done. You know, a lot of a lot of a lot. Of, this was very obvious when um, when uh, mobile phones came in. There were a few pioneers who really wanted to do mobile phones in, in Africa, but the government wanted to protect the current infrastructure that has been, in most cases, put up by the government. And they had to fight. Uh, the Zimbabwean case was amazing because the, 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 um, the, one of the companies had to fight for like 10 years until finally the government gave up. And that is the, one of the major companies in Africa today. Mm. But, but the, 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 the point here is that sustainability is interlinked with governance as, uh, in the ESG but it's also interlinked with government at a very local level. Who is making the decisions about what gets to develop in an area, be it a small village, be it a, a town or the country at large. And without, without this uh, distributed or say, decentralized decision-making and the ability of citizens to come together and say, this is what we want, sustainability is almost impossible. Yes, yes. Is, is it changing? Or is it just the luck of the draw, depending on what African nation you live in? I think it is changing. They are, they are, they are. Maybe it's, it is changing and not changing because in, I, let's take Zimbabwe, my country, as an example. We had very, very good systems. Maybe I was I started being active in the environmental field in Zimbabwe about 25 years ago. We had very strong legislation about what is the current environmental assessments that needed to be done before any development, and we it was all being enforced. I remember this because at the time I was working as an engineer. And I could go and say, my engineering project is not considering, is not following the guidelines for environmental impact assessments. And then somebody will come from the Department of Natural Resources and, make, and do an assessment and make sure that they are being followed. With the breakdown of the political system, you can't do that today. It's almost impossible. So this interlink between the, the, the uh, decision-making, governance, and the political climate of a country is very, very, very important for the direction of sustainability. And maybe there are a few countries where we can see some good examples. I think that Botswana has done a good job. Uh, Ghana has been stable for a while. They've done a good job as well. Saka was for a while, but I don't think it's going in the right direction either. Uh, what other countries are there that could be uh, role models? Yeah, not so many. So it's going in the right direction. It is, <laughs> I think, yes, people are getting more aware. But we don't have a lot of good examples at the government level. Reshma, your take on it? I think at the government level, as Stanley said, the political side and, um, if you like, um, conflicts of interest with individuals is, is, is there. We can't deny that. But that needs to be countered maybe with areas around where financing is available or other incentives are available um, that makes it 
more practical or I'd say more beneficial for such renewable projects um, to be put in place. I mean, we talk about gas capture and forests like in the Congo Basin. Yeah. Um, and if there were right kind of, um, you know, investments going into that rather than just being told, protect your forests, then it's hard for political interest to argue against that. But beyond the government, I think what's changing and Stanley touched on that is the voice uh, of the citizens that is changing. They are far more aware. Um, they are speaking up. I mean, we had a project in uh, Lamu, uh, a power, a coal power uh, plant that was stopped by the community on the basis that there hadn't been sufficient uh, public participation and that the ESIA, the Environmental and Social Impact Assessment, had not been completed to the degree expected. And then that plant was put on hold for that reason, um, as much that, as everybody else pushed for it. Yeah, yeah. but you don't think that sort of would have happened? 10, 15 years ago, that would have been railroaded through. That would have, the... Yeah, that would have. But there's also supporting legislation in Kenya around uh, in the constitution and in like land acts and all around public participation. And that also empowers, it's not just the public talking, but they're empowered within legislation as well. So the, it's those kind of frameworks that, you know, the governments need to develop around ensuring technical, around ensuring financial, but also around ensuring these kind of environmental and social impacts are assessed properly. Um, and, and that will empower people as well just to speak up even more. William, William when it comes to the, the, this whole issue, and that, that case study that was, was great about the mobile phones, that's the thing, isn't it? If you're coming in to, to provide sustainable finance from outside Africa, you know, part of you is saying, yes, that there, there are more hoops for you to jump through and governments are being more demanding. But there are also protectionist issues where governments have done this thing the way they've always done it because they have vested interests. Um, how much is, is it on the, the, the companies that are providing the finance to start pushing back and saying, look, we're going to build this, but you've got to let the voices be heard as well? What, what, or, or do investors just go, hang on, Here's my money. It's got to go to Africa. Their rules, they decide. No, I, I think I think the uh, the former. You know, there is an expectation, particularly from the, you know, of course, investors coming from an international community, particularly from Europe or the states. Their shareholders will already have strict criteria, and there will be legislation yeah. ensuring that. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, yeah, of course, it's a it's a more of a mixed bag. The further away you go from places that are are well legislated themselves or where the original capital is coming from faces tight scrutiny and legislation. Um, but, you know, I think it's, it's very hard to generalize across such a huge continent. As we said in the first episode, you will find markets, as Stanley's pointed out, that the way you can really point at best practice um, and yeah. people are, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a cliche phrase, but you can see some governments seeing the opportunity to leapfrog um, and say, well, we can use technology, we can use the, the hunger of our people to, to, um, to build things sustainably to be pioneers um, and then you'll have other markets where you'll have vested interests and it's going to take a generation um, to mm -hmm. change that and it's going to take the younger voters to have a voice and be the people in power um, and that's 15 20 years away but i think that all of this is an example where social media which you know often takes a bit of a beating um <laughs> particularly politically perhaps it can be it can and is a force for good because you see instantly um, stories being shared um, amongst communities um, and very rural communities, you know, that could be um, at the other end of the country from a capital city 
Um, and that will then drive awareness uh, amongst local governors, local community leaders who in turn are very influential. So they may be very far removed from the corridors and seats of power in, in capital cities. But certainly we've seen with our some of the larger infrastructure and energy companies we work with um, a real acute sensitivity um, to what's going on, to the, the discussion and the vibe and the mood online and the, what's being chatted about on, on various Facebook pages or what's being put on Twitter um, and not wanting to uh, to get on the wrong side of that. Stanley, um, as we sort of start towards the end of this conversation, one thing that I, I am quite intrigued with is the, the tools, right? The tools to get to, to more sustainable Africa. We've talked about finance, we talked about governments. What about the people? You know, the young people out there. Does Africa have the skills and the technology? And I know, obviously, different nations have different states of uh, levels of education. But in general, do you think there's a kind of feeling, as, as, as William was just saying there, about younger people, that they might want to go, actually, I want to be in a sustainable career. I want to learn these skills that allow me to improve my village water supply or my city's air pollution levels etc does africa have the skills the people that sort of stuff to, to do this change yes i think the answer is yes technical skills yes we do have uh, the question i guess is the question of leadership uh, do we have the kind of leadership that could be bold enough to take on the challenges that we are talking about and that yeah. is probably the same everywhere that there is you know, if, I, if, I'm a, if I'm a young guy, I have been educated, I have a master's degree in sustainability, and I want to do things right. Do I have the courage, do I have the leadership to actually do that in the face of having a choice of getting a, a simple contract which will give me more money and yeah. I don't have to fight with anybody? Or just, you know, fight with people and don't have to get, don't, not be sure whether I will get a return on investment on the, on the, on the project that I want to do, you know? There are not so many young people that would choose to fight and understandable mm. so. So I, I think that the competence, technical competence to do the projects is there. You know, I work with people who are doing regenerative work in Zimbabwe today on agriculture and land in general, and they are amazing what they, they can do. They are doing amazing work, but then they still have to suffer from this lack of leadership, you know, mm. or actually not lack of leadership, the leadership that works against them. How do you fight that? Yeah. The system working against you, yeah. yeah. What about the brain drain? If, if, you know, you're a young, smart African boy or girl, do you think, well, you know, why bother? I'll go and work in Europe or America or India, Russia, doesn't matter where the hell, I'll just get out of Africa because I know my skills will be more well rewarded and, and, and that's where I go. Is that still an issue? I, I guess it is an issue more today than it was in the past because today I can get a job via LinkedIn regardless of where I am in Africa, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the question is, uh, how many people can choose the love for the continent versus their own individual needs, you know? Very interesting. Rashma? Uh, you talk about a brain drain. I'm probably not the right example of it because I left the UK <laughs> to come and settle in Kenya. And uh, <laughs> I probably made my life far more difficult. I would have had far more opportunities. And what I'm trying to push on the sustainability side would have been a lot easier. But it's something I believe in. Um, I think there's a lot of innovation here. I think people are beginning to realize the kind of commercial sense of sustainability and not just the do good. Um, and I think the more and more, there's a lot of studies being done on that and a lot of people publishing examples and case studies that is building that awareness. 
and, and it's that kind of, okay, I'm doing good, but it also makes commercial sense. I think that's what's going to empower uh, kind of the younger generation who are risk takers, who are more innovative to go after it. Yeah, and I, I would agree with that, um, Reshma. And, and I think something we see, you know, we're a small organization where we get a lot of people knocking on the door and applying for full-time positions and internships. And a lot of them are coming to us because of a sense of pur being purpose-driven um, and wanting to make a difference. Um, and of course they want to you know, get, get well-paid and everything else, but that's not their starting point in life. Their starting point is there is a, there is a, a bigger picture that I can play a role in. And if I'm focused on that and I have a sense of purpose, my motivation will be greater and the pay and the other things will take care of themselves because I'll be doing a job that I'm motivated and care about. They are finding support. They are finding support in their networks as well because of social media. Mm. Mm. Well. Absolutely, absolutely. Do you think, just to end with, that um, you know, we've, I don't think we've been very negative. I think we've been very fair in this discussion of what is positive and what is there. That the fundamental thing that I'm getting from this is that the will is there. The question is whether the will is there in the leaderships of mm. these nations to do it. Um, let's just go around the, the virtual room, the virtual continents. Reshma, is the will there in the leaderships to change? I think the will needs to be um, supported with other incentives. Um, and it, it, that's where um, the kind of the investment incentive and things like that will come in. Um, commercial is a big one. Uh, even if there's legislation out there, countries are uh, beginning to realize they'll get locked out of the supply chain if they yeah. don't follow suit. Yeah. That yeah. might push um, the leadership to think twice again. Uh, William? Yeah, I think it is. I think it's easy to be glass half empty on this one, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say glass half full. I think it is. And um, I think the, the leadership, we, it shouldn't be something that we sit back on and go, well, is, is Africa's leadership up to it? It's, it's leadership globally. It's not just, and, and, you know, all leadership sets a tone that is followed by others. And uh, the, the, the UK and the West and the governments around the world have a responsibility, perhaps more so, to set the tone and direction and, to sit, and things like COP um, coming up, the, the, the gathering, the next big climate gathering where we expect a commitment and a, uh, something bigger than the Paris Agreement. You know, those are ways in which other leaders can set the tone, not necessarily um, just African leaders. Um, but I don't think it's our job to sit back and say, is Africa's leadership up to it? We should be pushing our leaders to be up for it too um, and setting a tone and, 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 a, and, a, and, and something that we can aspire to um, and, and then work towards together as a global community um, and, and not, not sort of be passive around whose who's role to lead this is it. And Stanley, to end with your thoughts on that real, I suppose, fundamental challenge of the political leadership allowing the will of the people regarding sustainability in the continent. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I don't know what would trigger the, uh, the change or the transformation, because as we all know that politicians tend to go with where they think the majority will go. I think that's my, at least my pessimistic view of politics. And uh, what, I, what, I, what I would like to see is to see people starting to influence the, the, the discussion at a political level, like you had in Europe with uh, the Green parties coming into, into, um, yeah. Yeah. into play, you know? And then that shifts the agenda and then people that are really working for a, a regenerative civilization will have a better 
a better shot at actually making their projects successful, putting their projects on the agenda, putting their projects on the budget even, you know, of national governments. Excellent. Well, let's, let's hope for that. Uh, Stanley, Reshma and William, thank you very much for joining us. You've been listening to a Future Net Zero podcast. And in our next episode, Looking at Africa, we'll be looking at, I suppose, one of the fundamental drivers of any change towards net zero and sustainability, the energy transition. So join us again for the next episode. Until then, thanks for listening. Download this, like it and share it with your friends and colleagues.